Let's pray before we continue. Father in heaven, you are glorious to behold. The gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, inspires our awe, our respect, our honor. Grant to us uh, eyes of faith that we might move from information that we have heard or even accepted to that which we believe we stand upon and stand in. Would you bless us now as we um, work through a little bit more of your scripture. Help us, God, to be kind of working into your life a little more in your son that we would live, move, and have our being in you, in Christ. Do a mighty work, we pray, in each of our, heart, our hearts, our lives. The kind of work that is so rich, so full, that it ripples into the rest of this afternoon and evening, this next week, this next month, this next year. And not only in our lifetimes, but in the lifetimes of those that we are responsible for, our children and grandchildren, the neighbors around us, our nation, our world, and of course, the Church of Christ. These things are beyond us, too hard for us, but an easy thing for you. In the name of Jesus, do a thing. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to release Mr. Blake, apparently, is going to take care of the little ones. In addition to little Charlie, his grandson, so he's quite competent. He's had enough Mountain Dew, so. <laughs> I love picking on you, brother, <laughs> like a dear friend. Um, uh, as you get settled, I am going to get uh, to several texts in the Bible today. Uh, by the way, I noticed there's a number of visitors today. I'm Pastor Josh, along with Jonathan. I, we both have the privilege of serving you uh, as we serve Christ. If you have any questions, just come and uh, holler. I'd love to get to know you a little better. Uh, and as we're going to look at a few things. We've begun a series uh, just this month on baptism, looking at uh, different bits of it. Last time we looked at the subjects of baptism. Today we're going to look at the symbol of baptism. And then we're going to look at, by God's grace, the spirit of baptism, which if you're going to hear one sermon on baptism, next Sunday is the one. And suddenly like 10 people leave, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it is the core, the key bit, and uh, I'll hint at it. I hinted at it last Sunday. I'll hint at it again, but unpack it uh, more thoroughly. Then lastly, we'll look at the sig significance of baptism. And uh, kind of like a happy meal where you get a little toy in addition to the cheeseburger thing and the French fries and whatever else they offer. Um, that last Sunday of the month, I have an uh, idea after a few minutes of fellowship that we will turn the microphone back on and it'll be a kind of an open open season on Pastor Josh, <laughs> and you can pepper me with questions on, uh, on that. I can discern through various uh, ones of you who have asked various questions. You have specific questions. It might be a certain uh, situation you're a part of, or a specific text that, you know, uh, maybe you haven't had uh, explained thoroughly by me or someone else that we could tackle. Uh, so plan to, to linger a little bit the last Sunday uh, here in February. Well, as we talk about the symbol of baptism, um, that, even just saying that just sounds like really dull. <laughs> like who wants to talk about the significance of a religious ceremony? That just sounds like so far removed from the real thing that is life that you're facing today, tomorrow, this week, the challenges that you, you face. And, and I'm going to tell you it's important, but I'd like to get there uh, kind of in a backward way, I guess. I have here this little thing. I wonder if anyone's close enough that can tell what it is. What is this thing? 
a peanut. It's a peanut. I happen to love peanut butter. <laughs> Anybody out there a peanut butter lover? I, yeah, nearly every one of us. Of course we are. We're Americans. If we don't live in Europe where they don't have peanut butter, I discovered that to my great chagrin. Uh, but we have the real deal, peanut butter. And uh, this is a salted and roasted peanut. And uh, yeah, it's, it's cooked, right? It's sterilized. It's preserved. It's yummy. It, it, the whole deal. Uh, and I bring this peanut for, up for a reason. When I was a child, I really loved peanut butter, like to the point where I think it was flowing in my veins. That's how often I ate the stuff. And uh, there's a couple of you who are agreeing. And, uh, and so I had this brilliant idea. I love peanut butter so much. I thought uh, we had gotten a bag of, you know, salted, roasted peanuts in their shell. And I thought, well, I'm just, I was a child. I did not understand uh, what some of my brothers here could tell me, that if you put it in a pot, it won't sprout, right? It's been cooked chemically changed somehow, the cell walls or some of them ruptured by this process. And, and then if you, if you had ever hoped that it would live, let's just pack a bunch of salt on it, right? <laughs> let's, let's just really kill it to be certain that it will be shelf stable for quite a while and that it, that it, that it won't respirate. Uh, right, Mr. Dudla? Like, it's not a living seed anymore. We've, we've done enough to it that it won't respirate. Right? Am I using the right term? Correct term? Good, good. He, he is informing me a lot about how things that you think are dead, seeds, are actually living. Well, anyways, I put it in this pot, and I had a little pot, and I put some dirt in it, and I, and I watered this thing religiously. You know what I mean? Like, I wanted my peanut plant to grow. I was in Ohio. They didn't grow, uh, you know, things like peanuts that far north. And I was really interested in it. After a couple of years, I just kind of got bored with it. And then uh, my great uncle, or my uncle Gene, he gave me a little tree and he helped me build it into a bonsai. And so I put it in that same pot and I wanted this like ancient, like oak looking thing, kind of like Mr. Miyagi and the, you know what I mean? I, I wanted that to happen overnight. I'd learned that bonsai trees don't work that way. And I, I watered this thing constantly, carefully. It was beautiful. It had little moss for the, you know, around its root system and if I got down really close to it I could pretend it was a really big tree and really old and I loved it loved it uh, about four or five years into this process through the moss something sprouted something sprouted that naturally never should have happened now I know that some of you who are in the scientific community will say you're an idiot <laughs> it's not possible you can't salt cook, roast, destroy the life within a, a seed and, and actually have life germinate from it. I know, it's, I know it's impossible as man evaluates things. I can only tell you what happened. That the dead, preserved thing that should have rotted over those four or five years burst into life. And soon it got taller than my little bonsai tree. And I thought it was, I'd never seen those leaves, so I wanted to see, I let it grow, outgrow my bonsai tree. When the frost came that winter, it froze and killed it. So of course I pulled it up, and that's how I know it was from the peanut that I had planted. Now, I tell you that story for a reason. Baptism is talking about that reality. When, it, when we in our ceremony say you are buried with our Lord Jesus in baptism... You might think to yourself today, I don't know if anyone being more sterile, cooked, dead 
than me. How is it that you're going to put this like watery symbol situation and that somehow a person as dead as I am in my sins and transgressions could come alive? Well, in the natural world, I know that's impossible. In the religious world, it definitely is impossible. But in the world of Jesus Christ, where he has an indestructible life, anything is impossible. Anything is possible. Amen. And that's what baptism is. It is not just a religious ceremony. It is a religious ceremony. But it is actually just, in a way, an outward sign of something inwardly occurring. It is, you take the natural and act it out kind of human ceremony or institution or ordinance, and it's pointing to something way more significant, powerful, personally present, and, and supernatural, a miracle. That is that God is on the throne of this universe and he cares about you intimately. He's personally invested in your situation so much so that he has opened your heart to pay attention to him. And a wonder of wonders, you admit that you're a sinner, you turn from that and want to declare allegiance and follow Jesus Christ. That is actually a miracle. That is actually a miracle. It takes a work of God uh, to accomplish that. I want to present to you that the symbol, what baptism is symbolizing, is, is an interesting thing to talk about. But more than the sort of the symbolism and all that, it's the reality beneath it that the symbol is pointing to. That is the work of Jesus Christ was this indestructible life who did die on the cross, was buried, but didn't stay there, should have been as dead as a roasted, salted thing in a cocoon, never going to live. He burst from the grave Amen. as the first among many. And the crazy thing is, you don't have to delay knowing that life until your actual physical death. In Christ, that's why we, we use this term sometimes in some circles, you can be born again. Have any of you heard that term? Born again. Nicodemus, a wise religious guy, like, how could anyone crawl into his mother's womb? You know, the, I know we're talking about realities that like... But if the symbolism is hard to comprehend, I want you to understand that the power of the living God in your life, if you will come to know him in this manner... You will think to yourself, you will come to say of yourself one day, if not right away, I thought I was alive. Now I see I was dead. Uh, before, I, I honestly could only say I was existing on the planet. Now I'm alive. I get it. And I'm a mess still. But Jesus has grabbed a hold of me and pulled me, as it were, out of... A swamp. We're talking about the symbolism, the symbol of baptism. We'll eventually get to a very significant text where the Apostle Paul unpacks that more thoroughly, more maturely, I think, than anywhere else uh, in the, the Bible. And that is at Romans chapter 6. But before we get there, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. This is, you may, for those of you who don't know, you may have heard of the word baptism, but you're, you're something about there's this guy named John. He's the Baptist. And it, I thought I would just review and remind you and me where it all came from. Matthew 3, it's on page 808. 808 there in your 
your Bibles. As you, as you turn there, I just want to make an obvious statement um, that uh, if you had, of all you heard was last week, and, and I tried to be not a bully, but to be very accommodating to one another and recognize that there are different interpretations, different cases that are made from the scriptures on, on what baptism should look like and who should be baptized, all those uh, sorts of things. And I tried to be very transparent and, and say I might be wrong, but I would also say I do have a settled conviction, and our church has uh, developed a fair amount of expenditure to put together a full baptistry where you can get someone sort of all the way wet. <laughs> uh, and we have this this new custom where that stays filled. We've got a gate behind there. Rest assured, moms, your little ones can't get in there. Uh, but uh, it's protected. But every and every Sunday we have it warmed again. Should, should anyone uh, say that today, like with Lydia or the jailer, what must I do to be saved? Why delay another moment? Let's get baptized. Maybe someone today will say that. The baptism's ready. The, the robes, the towels, all that sort of thing. So, so we've had a fair amount of expense and honestly a, a, a fair amount of mess is made. Why this style? Why am I, why are we, if I can say it, immersionists? Why are we uh, believers baptism, testifying personally to your faith? Why do we uh, approach baptism that way? There's two primary reasons, two uh, significant reasons for me. One is the witness of the New Testament and the Gospels uh, and the book of Acts especially, laying out what was actually done in those early days uh, as it was established. And the second main reason I'm an immersionist, I'll call it, and a believer's Baptist approach uh, to this, this uh, symbol, uh, to this institution, is what by the Spirit's guidance the apostles taught as they unpacked a mature reflection on what baptism pointed to. So Matthew 3 verse 1, I want to read a little section here with you describing um, the early days, the first institution of baptism. It says in verse 1 that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We of Abraham is our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, that therefore, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There, there it is. I just wanted to point out something kind of 
obvious, but it needs to be said. John comes, he kind of, kind of, he does initiate this baptism in the River Jordan. It's a, it's a new thing that the Jews weren't doing regularly before John, the forebearer, the herald of the Messiah of Christ, were to, was to come. So he starts this new thing, and he starts it in a certain way. But even he himself says, this significant initiative that I've started, this baptism for repentance, encouraging us to turn from our sins, really mean it, you might say. It's about to be transposed to a much higher degree because I'm baptizing you in water, he says in verse 11. But there's someone bigger, more important, more vital, older, you might say, than I am. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Water is what I'll start He's going to bring the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's pretty striking that there's a development, you might say, in what baptism is and what it accomplishes, its power, its reality, and its symbol that it's pointing to. What does baptism point to? There are three, in the New Testament, there are three things that are pointed to in baptism. Two minor things and one major thing. Two early uh, hints at it and one fully developed, mature, bursting forth from the grave symbol. Okay, uh, There are three things. There are two minor and one major. The first of the minor one is baptism was a symbol of initiation or of devotion. And, and we'll look at circumcision in a moment. Like circumcision, it, it points to being cut off from the ways of the world and the flesh and to be set apart unto God. It is a, an expression of faith that you are like joining God's people, as it were. Uh, and circumcision could have been, some would say, and there's one text in Colossians that points to this, and a source of inspiration, a, a, an antecedent for baptism. And some would say that that primarily is what baptism points to, and that's why many develop uh, paedo-baptism. They have a biblical case for it. It's based on that. I'm going to argue that's a minor uh, symbol rather than the major one that the apostles point to, but it is there. A second symbol that's more minor is a symbol of cleansing. And remember, in the old, there's all these rituals and rules in the Old Covenant. One of them was you would take hyssop and you'd dip it in the blood of a, of a sacrificed animal and you would sprinkle things to, to set them apart as holy, right? Or, or another example might be there would be an anointing with oil, a, a sprinkling of oil on, on the priest or on the son of Aaron. And it would flow down onto his beard and onto the lapel of his, of his cloak, you might say. This idea of anointing for, for commissioning, for, for cleansing, for setting apart, for, for making pure a ceremonial washing. And in fact, in Jerusalem, where I were toured, you can see the remains, the spaces where there were many, many larger pools set aside for worshipers who were to enter the Temple Mount. They could come in and, and dip themselves and get all the way under, actually, in these ritual cleansing pools. In the time of Jesus, they would do that in order to be, as you read in Leviticus and other places, prepare to worship the Lord. So maybe baptism is pointing to that. And certainly, you look at Hebrews 10 or a couple other places, there is a, a sense in which there's a washing with the blood of Christ, right? A washing our sins away. Uh, that is a second symbol. That is a, another one. I would say, again, it's a minor symbol if we're judging by what the apostles themselves emphasize. Because the major symbol of baptism is an identification with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death and the, the resurrection, a burying of self and a being born again. That's the major, that's the primary and most powerful pointer to what God is doing by His Spirit uh, in your life when you are actually saved. 
That is uh, a baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Spirit, we will talk about next week a little bit more. But I, I want today for you to think about that, that, that John, when he institutes this water baptism, uh, he's introducing something new. That's why, in a way, the minor ones are minor, because the minor ones all point to the Old Covenant, whether it's circumcision or a sprinkling from cleansing, they are pointing to the Old Covenant. And the major symbol only occurs when the New Deal comes, Jesus, and when that new deal finishes the deal, not only dying for our sins, buried, but resurrection, brand new thing, right? right? That's why the, the symbol of baptism and the trans, translation of communion as well, the other main ordinance, why they mean so much more after the resurrection, why the symbolism is meant to, to evoke and to point us to a reality of great power, way more significant and foundational than the slaying of a lamb or an old covenant symbol or rite. It's a major deal because of what Jesus did. In fact, uh, John says that. I'm starting this whole thing, Matthew 3, this baptism thing, but there's someone who's coming who's going to so transpose and reinvest and invigorate this practice with a whole set of new clothes, a deeper meaning, a deeper power that your, your socks are going to be knocked off. Uh, that's a paraphrase here. <laughs> He is going to winnow you. He's going to bring a power that you can't even currently fathom. The Holy Spirit and power. And in John chapter 1, you may remember, it mentions these Pharisees and Sadducees here in Matthew 3, verse 7. But in John 1, they're, they're mentioned explicitly. And these guys come with a whole entourage. And they say in John 1, 25, to John the baptizer, Well then, if, if you're not the Christ, why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ or Elijah or the prophet... Why are you doing this? Right? Who gives, what gives you the right to be the, the person who takes such an innovation and initiative in such a controversial way to add to the practice of the Jewish people, which is based, of course, in the Old Covenant, the uh, Old Testament? Who do you think you are? John doesn't actually answer that question in that way because he immediately gets to his point. Why he came was baptism was given so that he might testify to the one who was going to be coming after him. And that's why he said, I do this so that when Christ comes and I see the, the dove settle upon him and the Holy Spirit testifying, I can point like he did to those apostles or disciples who would become apostles. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Abandon ye ship from John the baptizer and go ye toward Jesus of Nazareth, right? Turn from baptism of repentance as wonderful and reinvigorating and refreshing as that ceremony, that innovation was, and go to the one who's about to teach you and to reveal the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. So if your view of baptism is, is primarily one of you know, a cleansing or a, like a, an identification as a starting point in your journey of faith, that's good. That is what baptism is. Uh, but I would like to argue and show you today that it is so much more, so much more. The major symbol of what baptism is is more than like what you can bring to it is what God has done and is doing for you. And you might think, I don't know exactly what you're saying. That's okay. Uh, there was a great man in the early uh, time of the church, a guy named Apollo, and Apollo said, he is a Jew. And listen to this description of him. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, a competent in the scriptures. 
How would you, wouldn't you like that description on your resume? Competent in the scriptures. That's Acts 18.24. Verse 25 goes on and say this. Apollos, he had been instructed in the ways of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, boy, another great accolade. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The way of God more accurately. I think if we're honest and we evaluate our experience with, of baptism as the church has practiced it in our lifetime, as you might have witnessed it, as you might, yourself might have participated in it, it seems merely so often more like a, a ceremony that the church offers to parents or individuals or children or whomever than a testimony of the power of the living God. Not always, but sometimes, if you witness it time and again, you kind of get numbed to the reality and suppose and kind of almost expect it to be kind of impotent. As just the kind of thing you do if you're a respectable person. Uh, in a way, because the church has call, uh, fallen on high, uh, harder times, at least in our area, where not only do people, um, you know, it's not no longer an automatic to even get married before having children, nor is it an automatic to get baptized if you're part of a church or if you're raising kids. Those things have now gone um, to the side. And that's a kind of a gift in a way, because when we're going through the motions, it doesn't really help us. We need a power that only God can provide. And the symbol of baptism as a burial and resurrection, a dying with Christ, a raising to walk in newness of life, is, a, is the primary, not only symbol, but the means and the, and the significance, the power of God in our life. And I base my uh, view that that's the main symbol, not on my preference, like I picked from one out of three, and that's just the one I like better, but because that's what the apostles return to time and again. Only one time are the other two symbols mentioned, uh, maybe twice for, for washing, and then you have to really talk about it because they don't use the word baptism, they use a different Greek term. But three separate times, deliberately, the apostles mentioned that baptism is associated with the death of and resurrection of Jesus Christ pointing to your death of self or to sin and new life in Christ. The first is in 1 Peter 3.21. If you would turn there with me, it's on page 1016. I think actually we might also have it up there if you, you have a hard time. It's a small book. It may take me a while to find it. 1 Peter 3.21. And uh, this is a description a mentioning of baptism and what it might symbolize. You know, he's not writing so that we would figure this out, but like more making a point about how to walk with Christ and alluding to uh, baptism. So Peter writes this. Simon Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus, an apostle, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God. For a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Yes, on the one hand, baptism is a symbol of cleansing. But Peter says quite clear, clearly here, the main thing is not the removal of dirt 
It's the power of death with resurrection following. It's the power of what Jesus accomplished, what he offers of doing life in Christ. Jesus is, as it says in Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. Revelation 1.5, those kinds of ideas. He is, he has died so that you don't have to die. Death, the sting of death has been removed. Uh, Colossians 2.11 is the other, another one. Two more to go. Uh, page 984, Colossians chapter 2. And I think we might have it up here again. Hey, look at that. Colossians chapter 2, another example. This is now the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, laying down uh, the significance of baptism and what it points to. In verse 11, we read this. In him, that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Who raised him from the dead. I should keep going. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Isn't that a wonderful sentence? Nailing it to the cross. This is partly, uh, it, well, this text in particular is the one that those who actually make a strong biblical basis for, for baptizing infants, the children of believers, what they call pedo-baptism, if they go to this text and argue it, uh, I'm, I'm in favor of that. Why not? You're, I think that's, that connection is made here. That is a connection. Uh, the, the connecting between the, the circumcision, that is the practice of, of circumcising, on the, circumcising on the eighth day, the children, the sons uh, of God's people, setting them apart, identifying with the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. That, that makes sense to me. But even in this case where it mentions that, Paul himself goes on to say, but the, the thing that's really pointing to is that you're dead in your sins and trespasses, that your sins were nailed to the cross and Jesus died on your behalf. You're to be buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life is what he's talking about. I know that that's the Romans terminology, but he's saying the same thing. He's canceling it so that you can now triumph over it and live in Christ. Hallelujah. Right? So though, though it's, it isn't inappropriate to offer this to our infants, it isn't exactly necessary because the, the main thing is, is has the Holy Spirit stirred on a person? Is he working in him or her? Is, is he causing them to be identified with Christ? More than God's people even. Is he identified or she identified with the one who died for their sins that they may have life? Right? And, and Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't bully. And that's why in following him, I don't want to bully you to, to suggest you should become a Baptist. Like sort of I am, at least in practice. But he's inviting you and he urges you to choose to identify uh, with him. And yet the fullest development of baptism and what it points to is as in verse 11 says here in Colossians, a putting off of the body of the flesh. A, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. That's why I'm an immersionist because I think it, sprinkling makes a lot of sense if you're looking at the old covenant or you're thinking of anointing with oil uh, or pouring even makes a lot of sense if if you're thinking about those realities, a, a partial cutting away, a part 
thing, like with circumcision, is only a small bit uh, is, is uh, re- removed, you might say. But baptism is a putting off of the body. It is being buried, it says in verse 12. And when we have infants, we don't usually think in those first few days of the grave. We're usually thinking, look at the potential of this little one, right? We're thinking what he might become, what she might grow into, right? We're usually thinking about the the potential of life. That's partly why it seems to me it's better to wait and to immerse, as it were, all the way under the ground, kind of, under the way, under the water, to be fully buried. That's partly why I think that's the best symbol. But also because it's when we become aware of the fact that we really are dead in our trespasses and sin, that we get it and that we cry out for Christ and say, me too, I also am a sinner in need of grace. Now, whether the person does that at three years old, 33 or 93, Baptize him at that point, right? I choose Christ for life. That's what his point is in Colossians 2. Don't walk in the way of the flesh. And that is also the Apostle's point in Romans 6. And this is where we'll end today. Page 942, Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans is a marvelous unpacking, a full explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it has also the most mature, fullest uh, description of what baptism was intended to symbolize. It's just absolutely breathtaking. If you begin to believe what this is actually saying and and think and suppose that there's actual power, the power of God beneath this reality, you're going to begin to realize, oh my goodness, that what baptism is pointing to is something that that's supernatural, that is extraordinary, not just ordinary, it's extraordinary. And that's uh, found here in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Listen to this description of baptism. If I was on the fence about being a, an immersionist or a believer's only baptism, this guy, this text is what brought me over the line. What shall we say then, writes the Apostle Paul? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. What is baptism? Primarily it is a symbol of death and resurrection. Now I'm so grateful that the imagery that the Lord our God and his wise and merciful providence selected was not be ye locust eaters. Right? (laughs) Be ye wearers of camel's garments. That would be quite uncomfortable. Right? Nor be ye like eaters of literal flesh. Be carnivores or, or even worse, cannibals, like those early believers thought that when Jesus said, eat my flesh, that he meant, right? Or be ye barriers of people in the actual ground, like physical dirt. Like, no, what he's saying is, go into the waters of repentance by faith, go all the way under, meaning get all the way wet. Don't be like those, I think it was the French during, uh, uh, during the Crusades, that they would refuse uh, those that were believers baptized, those, they refused to baptize their hands because they wanted to be able to hold a sword to slay their enemies in vengeance. So they would hold their hands above the water, the sword hand, deliberately intent on not being fully baptized so that a bit of them could continue to be, I guess, set apart for the way of the world. 
This is why sprinkling is inadequate. If that's kind of what you think happens, that you're, you're, God begins the work as part way, you're only, you know, you're, no. When you follow the Lord Jesus, you're either all in or you're not in at all. Right? You, 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 can't, you can't have Jesus as Lord and yourself as his right hand, you know, superhero, you know, sidekick. Trumping his ideas on how to solve things in your life. <laughs> no, you have to go all the way in. And this is why it's so beautiful what Romans 6 talks about. Because when Paul uses these terms, if you study this carefully, look carefully at the tense of the verbs and, and how we're participating, it, it is actually mind-blowing and marvelous what God offers us in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 again. Uh, or, uh, sorry, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, past tense, have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. That means if you're following Christ, you're, it's over. The old man, the old woman, the flesh, the sin, all that canceled, nailed to the cross, walk away, leave it behind. It's like go into the water and come out expecting, looking for your sins to be like on top of the water, like going to the water trap. Expect them to be there, so to speak. Right? Now, I hope you're not so dirty that you leave a residue behind, you know, in the natural world. But in the supernatural world, that's what baptism is. Is you go under, fully identified in Christ, as it were, like entering his body almost through his death, through his work on the cross, that, that your sins have been satisfied. That he covered the cost, that he, that he removed that sting, that he removed the debt. Right? You're laying it all there. You're saying almost as if if you had a checkbook. And let's say instead of having a checkbook that dealt with dollar bills in your life, you had a checkbook that was for every action or reaction that you thought or did. You would write something on a piece of paper. You know, like, oh, you know, celebrated my, my, you know, my coworker when they did this. Oh, like, was covetous of my coworker's car when I saw the new car. Next line. Oh, you know, like, lied. You know, on and on. You had this huge, vast checkbook of every action, intent, thing that you've done. You take that checkbook with you, so to speak, that you have done with you into the water, and you leave it behind. You put it in the water. You let it soak up and never come out of the grave ever again. Do you understand? You are forgiven completely. And when you bring up those old sins and regrets, you have to remind God about that. He says, as the far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from me. That's why when you come to the waters to be buried with Christ, the old person is gone. That old way of thinking if you try a little harder, 5% more. 10% this, if I just deny myself in this area of my life where I just feel like a complete heel when I once again go into something I know is not helpful or healthy, you, if you're trying to incrementally improve yourself, you're not understanding the, the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit and the fire that was unleashed, not on the cross, but in the empty tomb. Because Christ died in our place, he did die, all the way dead. He was set up into a, a hole in the ground. A huge stone rolled over it. But that stone did not stay there. It was rolled away. He burst forward by the power of his invincible and, and unquenchable life that he has. Because he died perfectly. Made a, a stain for my sin. But not actually a sinner. He was perfect. 
And that's why when we die with Christ, it's we enter the water, we go all the way under, we're saying, I'm all the way dead, no more Josh, no more me being the leader of my life. I'm done trying to lead myself out of this jam. I'm a sinner, I know I need him, I need to identify with Christ. We go all the way under and we come all the way out and we go, <gasps> you breathe the first breath because this is a new breath for you from this day forward, like Jesus said to John, or sorry, in Nicodemus, John chapter 3, you're born again. Of water and the spirit, he says. You have a new life. This is the thing, like from the moment you come out of that water, what it should be is every day of our life, if you've been baptized, every day should be done like this. I'm a baptized person. The old me got left behind. And when something that's from the old way of being kind of invades itself in my life, that's out of character. That doesn't fit who I am in Christ. I need to cut that out. I need to stop it. Instead, I need to press forward into the Spirit of God and discern what is His will for me, trusting that the power that He raised from the, the grave, that He brought His Son to life, being the firstborn among many, it says, that I too might have life in Christ. That's what He's talking about here. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too, whoa, we too might walk in newness of life? Are you kidding me? With the power of Christ in us, around us, through us? That's what he goes on to say. Look at verse 5. If we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We also will live with him. We also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What he's saying, folks, what he's saying, I, I was talking to someone and we were like, how do I read the Bible? And I would say, don't read the Bible like a list of do's and don'ts and you're trying just to do a little bit more do goods than bads. Read it like a love letter of God, like, like he wrote this so that you would know his heartbeat, so that you would want to be with him and be like him, Right? Not behavior modification. <laughs> That's not why you get baptized. It's a, re, it's a dead, you're done behavior modificationing. You need a new power source. You need a new battery in your life. And one that's far more powerful than Iron Man because the Holy Spirit of God invades you, says John. Even John knew that was coming. Somehow God himself will dwell in you and will be the resource that, that modifies your desires and guides you and that is life in God for you. That's extraordinary. Amen. It is absolutely extraordinary. What is even more astonishing? Jesus said things like this that seemed like an exaggeration, like a hyperbole. He says, it's good that I go because unless I go, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and fire won't come. And rest assured that when, if I go, you're going to do more than I ever could do. That's what he says. Oh, come on. How can that? Well, here's how it can be. Because the very same spirit that settled upon Christ at his baptism, remember the symbol of the dove? The Holy Spirit on the Son of God, ministering now through that powerful presence, that same Spirit dwells on everyone who's been baptized into Christ's name. 
So we now have, instead of a single solitary human body, God's Son with the Holy Spirit indwelling, every Christian, little Christ, running around, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Like, guided by God Himself, certified, sealed, blessed, like, in communion with Jesus who's risen from the dead. I mean, none of us deserve that, and we ought to be in awe that He offers that. Right? And if you're in awe of that and you press into that, you'll get pretty excited about getting closer and building intimacy with Him. So baptism is a symbolic participation with Jesus Christ in death and also that you have risen from the dead as well. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. <laughs> you know, what, what happens at crucifixion? Do you know what happens? Someone is executed. There's a body at that time living but barely alive anymore, you know, sort of roped, pinned, in some manner fixed to this wooden, wooden tee, as it were, until that thing dies. The cross was intended to kill something, right? So he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. In other words, I died. But now Christ lives in me, he says. Galatians 2.20, the whole verse is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who gave himself for me. Wow, right? This is an incredible reality. The old self was crucified, buried with our Lord Jesus in baptism as it were, under, in the grave, along with him, but raised to walk in newness of life. In Galatians 3.27, For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. I just finished with that invitation. I know, if you're here tonight, or today, I mean, that you've probably been one or many times that preachers have made invitations or that you've seen people get baptized or their children baptized. And then you go on and you see down the line and you, you think, well, look what that person became. Look what that family did. That can't possibly have any power or any truth. Look what happened. Now, I know that their evidence of our lives as sinners belies or undermines the fact that what Jesus and the apostles and the gospel says is true, but it is still true. Abuse does not negate use, that great reformer Martin Luther said. Let me say it again. Abuse does not negate use. The symbol is every bit as powerful as it ever was. Because we are saved not by the style in which we are put water on us, nor when we had that happen, if we have it happen. We are saved not by those things, but by Jesus Christ who died for us. The power is Christ. And Christ is risen and is every bit as alive and dispersed among his people as ever before. Don't let, don't let naysayers discourage you. The power of Jesus Christ is on offer for you. This could be the day when you say, I've had enough, I'm getting wet. Not to get wet, but to get Christ. Do you understand? Do that. I just urge you. Tonight is the Super Bowl. And I don't really care about the game anymore. I definitely don't care about the halftime show. I barely care about the commercials anymore. And I'll tell you, though, the only bit I really am all that all interested in is, as an engineer, the beginning when the airplanes fly over the whole thing. <laughs> That's the part I love. And the part that occurred just seconds before that. 
Remember, they'll have someone who stands up there and sings the national anthem. And I, and I, I, rare, whether it's a high school basketball game or whatever, rare is the time that I don't get chills when the national anthem of our country is sunk. Now, I know that we live in a contentious time and there are people who, instead of responding to that symbolic flag and that symbolic action of singing our national anthem, that they, instead of standing as it's our custom at a wreck, you know, showing honor, take off your hat if you're a guy, that kind of thing, there are those who refuse to do that. Instead, they will do another posture as if to dishonor uh, the slain and our nation and, and say, I'm not all into that America thing. That really galls me, but that doesn't empty the fact that my grandfathers and yours, some of them, you know, served in World War II and other times, and our nation still at its core is something worth identifying with. I don't discount that the symbol is, is corrupt and, and, and sullied. It's always been that way, but don't think because people have misused the symbol that it isn't still, as a virtuous person, worthy of aspiring to. That, you know what I'm talking about? The, the Declaration of, of Independence, right? I can read the whole thing, but you can read it again if you've forgotten. It is, it is a wonderful thing to aspire as a human people to. I would argue that though the symbolism and though the practice of baptism has often been muddied and polluted by human individual lives and also by churches, that's going to happen. Anything valuable and beautiful will be uh, in the target hairs of Satan who wants to destroy it. Know this, that the offer of baptism is still real, still points to Jesus Christ, and anyone can be baptized by the Spirit, whether or not you get into this place. If you're baptized by the Spirit, you know Christ. Amen. Or you know Christ. Oh, I, I hope you'll take it uh, to heart. Father in heaven... Lord, uh, by your great power, stir in our hearts. We're, we're just so sick and tired of seeing beautiful, great things watered down, diluted, and polluted. We want to know Christ, unsullied by our flesh, undistracted by our neighbors, you know, made clear by your word, certified by a, the fire of the Holy Spirit. You know, demonstrate your power to us. Show us again, renew in our day, the day of revival. Awaken our hearts to your reality and save us and those that we care about. Deliver us from our sins and grant that we might be as you say, Jesus. You are salt. You are the light of the world through me. Because if we are baptized, living in Christ, our area, our neighborhood, our workplace, our part of the world, our sphere of influence will be impacted by someone who carries along with their person the Holy Spirit of the living God. Grant that we might be your people, set apart to your name for your glory, and filled with your spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen.